What do your clothes say about you? Maybe they say you were rushing this morning to get here on time. Maybe they say you were so well prepared you were dressed at 7 a.m. for a 1030 service. The way we dress can often say something about who we are, about our personalities and what we enjoy. For instance, my son Aaron, who turns four today, loves to be cozy. And so his clothes bins are full of sweatpants and sweatshirts. You'll see him in, in, a, in a tie and a button down this morning. That is a miracle in and of itself. But you can think of other examples. You can pick out middle-aged dads anywhere you go. Just look for the tucked-in t-shirts and the socks and sandals. We know military personnel because they have to wear a specific uniform. The way we dress says something about who we are. The clothes we, re- we wear reveal something about our identity, our n- nature. What do your clothes say about you? Here in Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul will compare how we live the deeds that we are to do to putting on clothes. We are to dress ourselves in light of our new reality. We are to shed the old clothes and to put on the new clothing ourselves in Christ's likeness, for Christ is our very life. So if you have a Bible, please join me in opening to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to use one of the black pew Bibles there in the pew rack in front of you. You can find Colossians 3 on page 984. If you're new to the Bible, the big bolded numbers are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17. As you open there, let me introduce myself. My name is Paul. I have the opportunity and the privilege to serve here as one of the elders. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet, please plan to stay after the service that I might be able to introduce myself. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17. Considering our lives and the call to put on Christ. I'll read in just a moment, but before I do, let me lead us in a prayer for the hearing and proclaiming of God's word. Father, this morning we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would give us understanding. Make your word come alive to us as we hear it proclaimed. Lord, make it come alive to me that I may taste and see that you are good. Father, that we may together keep your law and observe it with our whole hearts, that we might put on the new, while we put to death that which is earthly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3, the word of the Lord. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Thanks be to God for His Word. Well, if you were to sum, summarize this passage, boil it down to one sentence, I think it, it may say something like this. Clothe yourself in the pattern of Christ through whom you have become new. Clothe yourself in the pattern of Christ through whom you have become new. The reality is, if you are in Christ, you have put off the old self and put on the new. That you are no longer primarily a citizen of this world, but of the one to come. And so we are to clothe ourselves appropriately. We are to put off the vices that once held sway over our lives, and we are to put on the virtues that mark our Savior, not just as individuals, but as we will see, as a community, as a church, together. Friends, we are being asked here in Colossians chapter 3, what do your clothes say about you? Clothe yourself in the pattern of Christ through whom you have become new. We're going to consider this in two basic points, not very creative here, put to death the old. Put on the new. The two biggest, two major commands of Paul here in Colossians 3, 5 through 17, the overarching commands, I would argue, are to put to death what is earthly, the old, and to put on the new. So let's begin first considering putting to death the old, verses 5 through 11 of chapter 3. If you remember where we ended last week, we were called to set our minds on Christ there in chapter 3, verse 1, to seek the things that are above, to set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And we were called to do this because we have been united to Jesus by our faith so that we have died to our old selves and that we now, our life is now hidden with him in heaven. That because His resurrection and His ascension, we know that we too will arise. That we will appear in glory there in verse 4. And so on the assurance of this promise that we too will appear with Him in glory, Paul says, therefore. That therefore there is actually the first word in the Greek New Testament. Therefore, the apostle says. That is, because we have been raised with Christ, we are to now be putting to death what is earthly in us. That is, sin. Sin is that which is not heavenly. It is the opposite of 
being heavenly minded is to be earthly living. That is to be sinning, to be committed to the things of this world over and above being committed to our God. We are to put to death that which is earthly. We are to be unlike the false teachers who Paul told us in Colossians chapter 2 have puffed themselves up in their earthly thinking. Rather, we are to humble ourselves and to put to death that which is earthly in us. As those who have been raised with Christ, we are to put to death our old way of life. Brothers and sisters, that's the call for each of us here because each of us, all of us who are here this morning are sinners. There is none of us who shows up this morning that is not currently or is not at one point under the sway of the power and penalty of sin. Who are still not yet dealing with indwelling sin that's leading us away from God. And so God says, if you have been made new, that is, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, that you will appear with Him in glory through His death and resurrection, put to death that which is earthly in you. This idea of putting it to death is that we are to take drastic action. That we are to weaken and subdue our sin, to to shed it like a snake sheds its old skin, to make room for the new. To do what Jesus calls us to do in Matthew 5, to tear out the eye or cut off our hand. We're not literally to go around killing parts of our body, but we are to be putting to death the members of our earthly earthly body to be we're we're called to be killing sin metaphorically to do everything in our power to to shed ourselves of the works of the flesh paul says we have been freed from that nature and yet it will not go silently into the night so brothers and sisters here at the beginning we've four words in are you putting to death that which is earthly in you Has your week been marked by a subduing of sin? John Owen, an old Puritan, says it this way. He says, do you mortify? That is, do you kill sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Friends, are you daily dealing death blows to sin? Or have you let up this week? Have you taken days off in your fight? See, the moment we think we can rest from the work of killing sin, sin has the upper hand. And so Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you. Well, how do we do that? Well, I'm going to draw out a few ways as we work through the text of how we put to death sin. And the first way is that we are to be keen to kill sin. Keen is an interesting word. I'm just using it to get the, the K to K sound. Keen is, is, is a uh, word that means to be eager, to be enthusiastic. Paul leaves no wiggle room. The command isn't, oh, if you have the time, you know, if, if amongst all your other responsibilities, if you, can, if you can spend a few moments trying to put to death sin, you should, you should try and do that. But only if you can, can get to it. No, Paul says, put it to death. Be eager, be keen to kill the indwelling sin that still remains. It's easy for us, brothers and sisters, to let up. 
I found it easy this week to, to get caught up in the busyness of what I'm doing. To think things are going well. I've, I've conquered some sin in my life recently, so I don't need to keep fighting it right now. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Friends, be keen to kill sin or it will be killing you. But what kind of sin are we to be killing? Well, Paul will, will highlight here two lists here in verse 5 and then again in verse 8 of sins that we are to, to be killing. But I don't think Paul is exhaustive. What, what Paul is doing is showing comprehensively what kind of sins we are to be killing. But he would argue and I would argue that we are to be killing all kinds of sin. Not just these 5, 10, 11 things that Paul says here in verses 5 and 8 and 9. But these are examples. These are not exhaustive, but to to give us a comprehensive idea of what kind of sin we are to be killing. Here in verse 5, Paul seems to be focusing in on sexual sin. You can read that list again. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. It seems in this context that all three of these were perversions of godly sexuality. It's easy to see that in the first three words. Sexual morality refers to any kind of general sexual sin, any kind of act that is outside of God's design for how do we are to relate to one another. Impurity is, is, a, is a word that refers to our moral corruption, that we've corrupted God's morality in terms of, of how we relate to one another through sexuality. Passion could also be translated as lust. It's very similar to what, what uh, Paul will say in Romans 1 or 1 Thessalonians 4. We are to be putting to death sexual sin. I'd argue evil desires and covetousness are more general and could be applied more generally. But it seems appropriate in this context to apply it particularly to, the, to, to a wrong sexual desire or an uncontrolled desire for more and more. Brothers and sisters, we need to be real with ourselves. Temptations to sexual sin are all over the place. We are not immune, whether we're single or married, whether we're young or old. Temptation abounds in this world that is given over to, the, to arguing that you should have whatever pleasure fills you. So we need to be aware. You know, tonight many of us, me included, will tune into the Super Bowl. But as you do so, be careful. From halftime shows to the commercials, you will be face-to-face with a culture that rejects this view of sexuality and, and proclaims to you a, a sinful view of it. And so you need to think carefully about how you might put to death sin even as you watch the Super Bowl. You might consider recording the game and starting it an hour or so later so that you'd be able to fast forward through any commercials that make you uncomfortable or the halftime show. You might consider setting a timer so that you know that, that, that this is how long commercials usually go and, and we'll, we'll turn the TV off or mute it or whatever it is so that we can chat with others that we're watching the game with. Whatever you do, consider how you are to be putting to death sexual sin. But Paul tells us the root of all sexual sin, and that is all sin altogether, is there in the end of verse 5. It's idolatry. 
Sinful desires and acts, even those that are sexual, have their root in idolatry. We desire our own pleasure over what God has designed for us. And that, friends, is idolatry. Anything that we put over and above God, we have made into an idol. And God will not allow His people to be given into idols. That's why Paul says in verse 6 that we need to consider the consequences of our sins. As we seek to put to death the old, we need to not only be keen to kill sin, but here we need to be aware, considering the consequences of sin. Look at verse 6. On account of these, that is these, these sinful acts or desires, these sins that, that Paul has just called us to put to death, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Brothers and sisters, the reality is that, that we put to death sin because we know God will judge all who are under sin's power and given over to it. You might say, sitting here as a Christian, well, I'm, I'm already rescued from that. And that is true, but, but Paul, Paul is writing this to Christians. And so it's helpful for us to receive it. God will judge us, brothers and sisters, if we are not putting to death sin. We worship a holy God, one who is perfect in power and in righteousness, one who is holy, set apart from us in every way. And this holy God must judge sin. God's wrath is not the action of an angry drill, drill sergeant who punishes because it gives him the giggles. It's the action of a good and holy God who cannot ignore sin. But the good news is God hasn't ignored sin. He hasn't left us on our own. He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ. So that if you believe in Him, that His life, a life free from all sin, including sexual sin, that His life becomes your life. That through His death and resurrection, He took on our sins so that we might be saved from God's wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 tells us that it is Jesus and Jesus alone who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. And so considering the consequences that our sins deserve, considering the great length that Jesus went to to pay for our sin is an important tool in our tool belt in fighting against sin. You want to know what God thinks of that sin that you committed last night? He sent Jesus to die on the cross for it. It's deserving of His wrath. And yet He loved you so much that He sent Jesus to die in your place so that you may no longer be under its dominion. And so considering the consequences of sin motivates us to put to death that which is earthly in us. And it reminds us that we have been set free. That's what verse 7 tells us. In these you too once walked. This is past tense. When you were living in them, Paul says. This was true of you, but it no longer is true of you. Jesus has died and risen again, and so you have been set free from these things. And because we were set free, we now rid ourselves of them. That's what we see in verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Again, Paul repeating this command, put to death, verse 5. It's repeated for us here in verse 8. Put them all away or rid ourselves of them. I picture how we might clean out our cupboards when we go on a diet. We once walked in fatty foods, lived in them, ate them all the time. But now, we throw them all away. We rid ourselves of them. We throw them in the trash. This is what we are to be with sin. To rid ourselves of sin. 
to shed it, to, to do all that we can to put it away. Paul again gives us a list of different sins. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. If the first list was a perversion of godly sexuality, this list is a perversion of godly speech. Paul thinks not only about, about how, we, how we deal in our relationships and in, in, in sexuality, but he tells us how we deal in our relationships and how we talk to one another. The first three words, anger, wrath, and malice, kind of work together to connote this attitude of anger and ill will towards others that causes us to lash out with hasty and nasty speech. You've probably experienced that, where you got so angry that you couldn't control it, that you lashed out. That's the kind of attitude that Paul's talking about with those three words. And then he moves more clearly into our speech as he begins to think about slander. That is, that is the tearing down of others. And obscene talk, the, the kind of crude and coarse language that's often used to tear down others. Even verse 9 has something to do with our speech. He says, do not lie to one another. Brothers and sisters, you need to beware of how you talk. How you talk to and about other people. It's not becoming of the heavenly life, Paul says, to be filled with angry, crude, defaming, and untruthful speech. Yet this is what we often hear and are watching and are reading. It's what we hear at our workplaces. And so it can be very easy for us to begin to use the same kind of language. Or to be double-minded, to speak one way with this group of people or another way with that group of people. But Jesus is clear in in Mark chapter 7 that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out, because that reveals where our hearts are. So friends, what do your words say about your heart? What does your speech say about whether you are putting on the new Kids, even you, if you hear parents or teachers or friends at school using this kind of angry or or crude language, think carefully about your words, for they often say more, more about our heart than we realize. Paul says we put to death sin as we are keen to kill it. As we consider the consequences, we need to be wary of of both sexual sin and sins of of the mouth of speech. But as we move into verses 9 through 10, we realize that that the, the motivation for this kind of putting to death sin is remembering our reality. Look at verse 9 again. Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. This is already true of you. The command in verse 5 is to put it to death. Here in verse 9, Paul says, you have already put it to death. It has already been put off. Verse 10, he continues, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul's argument is that the reason that we can put to death sin is because we have already put off the old self and put on a new self. That the reality is that Jesus has already disarmed the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That we have already died with Christ, verse 3 of chapter 3. And now our life is hidden with Christ above. Friends, we don't put off sin so that we can come to Jesus. 
We put off sin because Jesus has come to us and is making us new. You will not be able to put to death sin if you have first not realized and believed in the death of Christ for your sin. John Owen again says it this way, there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. Friends, you cannot put to death sin if Jesus was not first crucified in your place. And the reality is is that if you have believed in Jesus, if you have rested upon Him, recognizing that you cannot earn your way to Him, but you have rested on Jesus in His act, that you are made new. That you stand today in heaven with Christ and that one day you will appear with Him. And so therefore, you can put to death sin. We have put off the old and put on the new. And what is this new like? Well, look at verse 11. Paul writes here, There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul says in verse 11 that this new self, that, that's what I think he's, he's talking about. What is it that's being renewed, this new self? Well, this new self is no longer primarily identified by our social status or ethnicity or our past, but rather it's identified now with Jesus. Christ is all. That is, He is sufficient and supreme above all other things, and He is in all. That is, He fills all who have believed in Him. We were in Adam under the reign and rule of our sin. But Paul says now we are, not, we are now in Christ. And being in Christ, we are brought not just with a new nature or becoming a new person, we are brought into a new humanity. Paul's emphasis here is, going, is, is clear, not just on our personal lives, what you and I do by ourselves, but corporately, how we have been brought into a new group of people united in Jesus Christ. That we're no longer primarily identified by by the communities of this world, but we are primarily identified by Jesus. At the heart of this new humanity is Christ. And in this new community, through our union with Jesus, we are freed from the condemning power and penalty of sin so that we might put it to death. So brothers and sisters, this week make it your business to put to death sin. Make it the business of all the days of your life to put to death the indwelling power of sin until the day that you are with Christ forever. Paul says we put to death sin as we are keen to kill it, as we consider the consequences, as we remember our reality. But we're not just to put to death sin, that is shed the old, Rather, we are also to be clothing ourselves in the new self. That we put to death the old as we put on the new. Look with me at verses 12 through 17. And put on the new. So, so far we've seen three commands. Look at verses 5, 8, and 9. All three commands have been negative. That is, things that we are to put to death. To to rid ourselves of. To not lie. And now Paul's going to switch. And here the commands all become positive. Things that we are to be putting on. 
Put on this. Put on this. Let this rule in your hearts. We are to put on the new. But this command to put on the new is rooted first in something. It's rooted in our privileges as God's people. Look at verse 12. Put on then, there's the command, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. As Paul is calling us to put on this new flesh, he's reminding us right from the beginning that this is our status, that we put it on apart from our deeds, but through God's grace. So Christian, this is your reality. If you are in Christ, you are one of God's chosen ones. One of those whom he has in his wise, sovereign, and good providence from the, before the foundations of the world chosen to set his love upon. You are one of his holy ones. That is, you've been set apart. You no longer are under condemnation, but have been set apart by his grace. If you are in Christ, you are beloved. Just as the Father loves his Son, he now loves you. And nothing, Paul will tell us in Romans 8, can separate us from this love. And this is your reality, brothers and sisters, not because you have perfectly put off sin and put on righteousness, but because you have trusted in Jesus. Paul hasn't even told us what we are to put on, but he's telling us who we are. And so what you need is not more effort. I just need to work harder. No, what you need is to be better acquainted with these privileges that are yours through Jesus Christ. That in Jesus you are a chosen one, holy, beloved. When's when's the last time you've meditated on these great privileges that are yours? When's the last time that you have reminded yourself that because of Jesus you you have been given a unique status in His kingdom? These privileges are not earned. They are freely given as grace. And so friends, there's no special spiritual program. As, as we talk about the things that we are to put on, just know that there's no, no spiritual program that, that will help you put on these things. Rather, what you need is to know that Jesus is sufficient. To bathe yourself in the, in the privileges that now belong to you through Jesus Christ. And if all of these privileges are ours in Jesus, Paul says... You now clothe yourself in Christ. This is what we see in the rest of verses 12 to 14. That we are to clothe ourselves. Look at what we are to clothe ourselves with. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We are to clothe ourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. We are to bear with others and forgive others. And we are to put on love. Well, let's highlight a few things about these virtues. Before we dig into how we can do this, let's note a few things about these virtues. First, they seem to be all about our interactions with others. So in verse 11, what Paul is saying is that this new self is not just about you and me as individuals, but that God is creating for himself a new humanity 
These kinds of, of characteristics, these kinds of virtues are the things that will foster and build up this new community. And I think it says something important about where we put these things on. That we put them on in His church. That it's nearly impossible to grow in all of these virtues without being a part of some sort of community of God's people. This is what God has saved us into. First Peter chapter 2, we read, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were not a people, Peter says, but now you are a people. That the way Peter describes our salvation is that we have been saved into a community of other saved people. One author notes it this way, that if we imagine that life is just about Jesus and me, we won't function as faithful citizens. The Christian life, brothers and sisters, is far more than just you and Jesus. To do these things that Paul is telling us to do, to put on these things requires that you be participating in a group of people. You cannot be a faithful citizen who is forgiving others if you never see others. You cannot be a faithful citizen who is loving others if you are never around other believers to love. You can never show compassion if you are not with other people. And so while these are personal attributes that each of us are putting on individually, we we must do so as we operate in community. To put on these things is to do so together. But secondly, we should also note that these virtues are not just good things that Paul thought of. As he was writing, he's just writing down. He's like, oh, yeah, that's a good thing to write. And that's a good thing. And oh, that sounds nice. No, these were all virtues of our Savior, Jesus. Jesus is the one who had compassion on the crowds. For he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was kind to all different kinds of sinners. Known for how he was a friend of tax tax collectors and sinners. Jesus displayed humility as he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, as the the, the God-man took on flesh. Jesus is the good king who is the truly meek and gentle one, the one who calls us to himself, for he is gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is the one who has patience with his people, bearing with us that we may be led to repent. Friends, Jesus is the one who forgives the the sinful woman who wet his feet with her tears. And Jesus is the one who has forgiven us through his work on the cross. Jesus is the one who has supremely loved us. That we cannot know love apart from love that has been manifested to us in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, as we clothe ourselves, these are not just good things that help our community. No, we are clothing ourselves in the pattern of Jesus. Romans 13, 14 says it this way, but put on, this is the same command, clothe, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Brothers and sisters, as we clothe ourselves with these characteristics, we are clothing ourselves in Jesus Christ. We are putting on the Lord Jesus. The kind of clothes that we wear should be the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, as we put on Jesus, Paul says that that is a way that we make no provision for the flesh, that we put to death that which is earthly. We are not going to be neutral. We're either going to be putting on Jesus and putting to death sin, or we're going to be putting on Jesus and leaving, or putting on sin and leaving Jesus behind. So, brothers and sisters, what kind of clothes are you wearing? Are you marked by compassion? Is your heart easily warmed when you see a brother or sister in need? This is what a compassionate heart is. It's it's a heart that sees someone in need and is moved to their aid. Are you clothed with kindness? Are you tender-hearted to others? If I was to ask your spouse or a close friend, someone you live with, what would they say? Would they say that you're kind? Are you more concerned with your own interest or the interest of others? Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, as he, Paul talks about humility, says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Church, this is the kind of church that we want to be. One that looks out for the interest of others and not only at our own interests. Are you genuinely happy when you see the relationships of other, other brothers and sisters thriving? Or are you jealous that they're getting what you want? That's looking out for our own interests and not for the interests of others. Consider your meekness or your gentleness. When someone critiques you, how do you respond? Are you harsh in a way that stirs up anger? Or do you respond with meekness, softly? Looking out for others and not just for yourselves. Are you patient with others? If someone wrongs you, are you able to bear with them? Are you quick to judge or defend yourself? Do you remember that that God has been patient with you? That He has endured with you even as you rebelled against Him? Are you patient with others as they seem to be growing slowly? Friends, growth takes time. We all grow at different paces. Are you able to bear with others who may be growing slower than we may want? Paul connects this kind of patient bearing with others to our then forgiving of others. Those who have been forgiven, Jesus says, must forgive others. Look down at verse 13 again. We are to bear with one another, and if one another has a complaint, if one has a complaint against another, we are to forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Paul tells us that if we are to be putting on Jesus Christ, that that we are to be putting on forgiveness as Jesus has forgiven us. It's not just you should forgive, or it's best if you forgive. The Bible says that if you've truly been forgiven, you must forgive. 
Consider Jesus' answer to Peter's question in Matthew chapter 18. In verse 21, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, thinking he's being generous. But Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. As you, for, you should forgive as often as someone comes to you asking for forgiveness. That should feel overwhelming to you. But it's this kind of forgiveness that we've experienced. Friends, you haven't just sinned a few times. No, you have in your very nature been rebellious against your holy and good God. And Jesus has forgiven you. And so we are called to forgive with a forgiveness that goes far above and beyond. Now let me be clear, forgiveness doesn't mean that we, we forget about consequences. It doesn't mean that we pursue justice or that everything goes back to exactly how it forgives it, how it was before. But forgiveness is something that should be taking place. And the wisdom of how that works out in each of our lives takes, takes wisdom and takes time to figure out. But above all that, Paul says, above all those things, those are wonderful things, compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and bearing with and forgiving. Above all of those things, kind of in summary, Paul says, we must clothe ourselves with love. Love is what binds all these things together. If you are loving, Paul says, you will be compassionate. If you are loving, you will be kind. If you are loving, you will be humble. If you are loving, you will be patient. You will forgive. Brothers and sisters, love is the defining mark of a Christian. Jesus says to his disciples that they will know that we are his disciples by our love. What does your love of other brothers and sisters here say to a watching world about who you are? But we can't love if we haven't first been loved. We can't love if, if Jesus has not first loved us. And so maybe these things sound too hard to you. It seems like it would be too difficult. You're exhausted from parenting, from working. You've been hurt too much by others in this local church or another local church. Or you're frustrated with people because they're just so, so slow and hard to love. How do we love them even in the midst of all of that? Will we remember that Christ has loved us? How do we make this not just a pious platitude, but a way of life? It's by pressing in to Jesus, by remembering that Christ is ours, that we have already been brought into this new community, that this new humanity has been created through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so it is He who empowers us to be able to do this. So run to Him. You are, you are able to change not if you work hard enough, but if you trust in Jesus. Which means if you are in Christ, you are able to change. That if you are in Jesus, even if, if some of those questions you, you felt like, oh man, I have fallen so short. You are able to grow and be transformed and to put on the new. Because one day you will appear with Him in glory. And if you have not believed in Jesus, let me be abundantly clear that all of these things that, I, that we've just talked about, about how you are to live, to be compassionate and kind and forgiving, to be loving, 
That you, you are not able to do any of those things apart from first being loved by Jesus. That doing those things will not earn you grace in God's eyes. It's only through running to Christ. And this is what Paul makes abundantly clear as we move into verses 15 to 17. That Christ not only empowers us to put on these virtues... But really, what is going to mark a church that's putting these things on is Jesus. And he says it in four different ways. Four different marks of a church that's clothed in Christ. And all of them come back to Christ because He is the sufficient one. So the first mark of a church clothed in Christ is that the peace of Christ rules in our hearts. Look down at verse 15. I think Paul has kind of changed his tone. Right? Verse 14 really seems like a conclusion above all these, put on love. And now he's, he's turning and, and, and adding on to that. And in adding on to that, I think he's drawing out what it is that's going to help us put on these virtues. First, the peace of Christ rule in, in our hearts. Paul says in verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. In chapter 1, verse 20 of Colossians, Paul has already told us that through the blood of Jesus, the blood of His cross, Jesus has reconciled us to Himself. And Ephesians chapter 2 says, in reconciling us to Himself, Jesus has broken down the wall of of, um, division and now has united us to one another. And so the church that is putting on the new self will be a church that is ruled by the peace of Christ. A church that is united. That's the idea of this idea of the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts is a church that is one body. How do we know the peace of Christ is ruling in our hearts? Well, are we united to one another? Brothers and sisters, the kind of church that will be ruled by the peace of Christ is a church full of those who are at peace with Christ and peace with one another. Is this descriptive of us here at Stafford Baptist? Are you at peace with other brothers and sisters? Does our unity shine out because of what Christ has done? If if someone was to walk in and see us living together, would they say, man, the peace of Christ is ruling in their hearts? A church that is marked by love and compassion and forgiveness and patience is one that is ruled by the peace of Jesus. But secondly... The word of Christ ought to dwell in us richly. So a church that is clothed in Christ is a church where the word of Christ is dwelling richly among us. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. A church that is being clothed in the pattern of Christ, it will be a church in which the word of Christ is dwelling in us. And how is it to dwell in us? Well, it's through our teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And how are we teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom? Well, Paul tells us by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The Word of Christ dwells in us richly, not only by gathering around the Word to hear it proclaimed, but as we sing the Word to one another. Church, one of the primary ways that you can help others put on Jesus Christ is by singing. And I know that sounds silly. How does my singing help others put on Jesus Christ? But that's what Paul is saying. 
Look at it. He says, you teach and admonishing one another as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It seems small. It seems simple. But it is not. We are being commissioned here in Colossians 3.16 to teach and admonish one another through our singing. This is how the message of Christ dwells among us. I know this to be true, so so it's okay, but you are far more likely to remember a, a lyric of a song we've sung than anything I've said in the last 50 minutes. But don't worry, our, our sermons are always available. You can go back and listen to it. But because of that reality, that, this is why Josh and, and, and your pastor spend so much time taking care to think carefully about the songs that we sing. We, we want to sing songs that are where the word of Christ, where the message of the Messiah is dwelling richly. So that when we sing, we are able to sing to one another so that the word dwells among us. So brothers and sisters, come ready each week to sing. Every week I send out an email on, on Saturday with a link to all the songs that we are singing. But if email is not your thing, you can always go to our website. And it's there throughout the week. So make it a practice on Saturdays or throughout the week to listen to the songs that we'll be singing on a Sunday. In your car on Sunday mornings, put on the songs that we'll be singing so that you, when you come in through those doors, you are ready not just to listen to some great singers, praise God, we have them, but to sing, to listen to the great singers that are out here, not just the ones that are right here. To teach and admonish one another. This is the defining mark of a church, church that is putting on Christ. is one that teaches and admonishes one another through the songs that we sing. Friends, when you sing, you sing to God. Yes, Paul says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We, we do sing to God. But as you sing, you are also singing to one another. So it's okay. It's okay. I promise. You will not die if you turn around and look at someone behind you and sing to them. You will not evaporate and they will not evaporate. You will keep on going. It's okay to when we sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus to look at one another and say, turn your eyes. Look at him. Paul says, in fact, this is how the word of Christ dwells among us richly. This is how Jesus dwells among us as we sing to one another. I could preach a whole sermon there, but I've already preached one. So we need to keep moving. Verse 17, the final verse of our of our passage the name of Christ is over all that we do the name of Christ is over all that we do Paul says in whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus in other words do everything in the name of Jesus this is this is a, a general command right that this is the end of, of Paul's major exhortation he's just spent a lot of verses telling us what we're to do. Put to death this and put on this. And he kind of sums it all up in verse 17 and says, whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus Christ. How are we to live as the community of God's people? What does the community that's putting on Jesus look like? It's one that does everything in word and deed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ is above all. That's why we've, we've, that's what we're considering again and again in Colossians. Paul is telling us Christ is sufficient. He is supreme. He is above all things. So everything that you do, yes, from brushing your teeth to coming to church, to going to work, to going to school, 
All that you do, all that you say is done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, if someone was to follow you around this week, would that be true of you? That you did all that you, that all, all, all your deeds and all your words in the name of Jesus. A church that is putting on Christ will be a church that is submitting to the authority of Jesus and living in submission to Him. A church that is putting on Christ will be one that holds up Jesus as the cornerstone in thankfulness, which leads us to our final observation. Number four, we give thanks for Christ to the Father. I don't know if you noticed, I kind of glossed over it in verse 15 and verse 16 and verse 17, but again and again, Paul tells us, and be thankful, verse 15, to sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, to do everything you do in the name of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Friends, everything that you do ought to be motivated by thanksgiving. You want to put on these, these virtues? Be thankful. You want to put on compassion? Be thankful for Jesus' compassion towards you. You want to put on love? Be thankful that Jesus has loved you. Friends, this kind of community is formed not by just doing good things, but remembering what Jesus has done for us and being thankful for it. And this thankfulness reminds us that, that while this kind of community and life will not come about overnight, it will, it, 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 will not, it will be slow. We're also reminded that it will not come about unless God works it to come about. And so the defining mark of a Christian is thanksgiving. One that doesn't assume upon God's mercy and kindness, but gives thanks to Him. Brothers and sisters, what do your clothes say about you? Are you clothed in the new self? Or do your clothes still reveal that you're walking in the old self? Remember that you have been made new through Jesus Christ, so clothe yourself in the pattern of his righteousness. Let's pray. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name in us. Father, this is our desire. Not that we would come before you because of our good works, but Father, that we would humble ourselves before you knowing that that we have done nothing to earn your grace, but you have lavishly laid it upon us that we might stand before you, putting off the old and putting on the new. And so, Father, we pray that you would glorify your name as we put to death that which is earthly and we put on Christ. Father, may we this week put on Jesus. May we put on love and compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and gentleness. May the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. May we sing to one another that the word of Christ may dwell richly among us. May we do everything in word or deed in thanks to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.